no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome again to Media and the End of the World. School started back here. Ralph, how's your classes going so far? Classes are great. I, I have an exciting opportunity this semester to teach a class in, uh, it, it's a, a uh, genre class in horror, gender, race, and identity. And I am so excited to be teaching this class because we're going to be able to watch some wonderful films. And we had a great conversation yesterday in our first class where I got an idea of the range of students. And and it really was a wide range from uh, people who watch horror films and don't get them to people who like the supernatural horror Hmm. stuff, like The Conjuring. Several people mentioned The Conjuring specifically. And then there were other people who were like, yeah, I like the gore. I like the, Mm. the... and and actually, there were also some people who have a little bit of a background in, um, you know, feminism, identity studies, and things like that. So they'll be bringing some of that. So I am really excited. And Monday, uh, we're going to watch Bride of Frankenstein, which is um, probably the 200th time I've seen it. And it just gets funnier every time. <laughs> it is the funniest movie. I uh, I don't want you to have to, to give away the, the magic if you're holding anything out for students and they happen to be listening. But... How do you put together a syllabus for something like that? And, and and then also, do you do you kind of shift it throughout the semester? Do you read the room a little bit and and move from from one piece of media to another, or or do you have it planned out pretty well in your head? I well, I I uh, I the people I respect a lot are really strict about yeah. it, and I'm not. Yeah. So I do what I would not advise other people to do. But I think part of it is reading the room and getting an idea of you know what's going to because uh, some of the ideas um, about popular culture, especially, you know, there's a lot of people who denigrate studying popular culture and think it's a waste of time. But it really is where we get so much of our the stories that help us to make sense out of reality. Um, and so uh, then, you know, basically you adjust to the audience. It's kind of a rhetorical right. thing. You read the situation and you realize. And I, I did kind of want to hesitate until I knew what the tolerance level of the group was. Sure, There's a sure. whole kind of subcategory that is usually called transgressive film, which is really hard to watch stuff, really kind of, you know, um, there's some dismissive terms that people use like torture porn, which are, which kind of miss the point, but, but they are really confrontational films. And so you have to, as an audience, be prepared for that. And some people are just, you know, they're just not, they may be horror fans. They're not going to go there. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the idea of preparing for it is thinking, how do you get from um, starting to think about a, a popular culture form uh, in relationship to how we usually experiencing it, which is as a consumer and the discussions among friends about liking it or not liking it or whether it was good or not. And then moving from that to something where the focus isn't so much on the object you're looking at, the film you're watching or the book you're reading, but more how you think about it, what kind of questions you ask. So um, you can take any horror film, which has dealt with gender throughout its whole history, and say, what's this telling me about the world of the relationship between binary gender constructions or LGBTQ range gender constructions or 
what kind of messages this what kind of messages are implicit in the way this was put together that tell me something about the storytelling world I live in and that's that goes all the way back to you know oral tales and things like that so um, and we all get our own opportunities to kind of figure that out yeah. are you are you a horror person at all I no I wouldn't say so oh, okay no I don't yeah. know I don't know I'm, I guess I'm a, a chicken when it comes to, to horror but, but you, I, I am a thriller like uh-huh. I like I like thrillers um but I I don't think horror is a genre that I that I get into. I like boring movies. I like dialogue driven. <laughs> um, you know, you, it it could be the entire movie is a conversation, and I'd just be happy as a clam. Uh huh. Yeah. I I still uh I I really appreciate those. Yeah. I really like that. It's be good, but it's definitely a shift because you're going kind of from. Um, and and a lot of documentaries are like that. Right. Very kind right. of like walking you through heavy. For some reason, you just reminded me of a movie called Naked. I don't know if you ever oh, saw no. that. David Thewlis is in it. And it really, I, I haven't seen it. It's quite a few years ago. But uh, it kind of feels like the film starts and David Thewlis starts talking. And then he keeps talking. And then he ta- and then two hours later, he basically stops talking and the movie's over. And it's like he yeah. is, it's, it's like hanging around with uh, uh, an English friend who drinks too much and talks too much and doesn't listen to anyone and is extremely self-destructive. <laughs> Yeah, so I would yeah. recommend the film. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful film, but we, uh, my wife and I, went and saw the post over the weekend. Ah, and uh, it was great. It was great. Uh, you know, n- no surprise, Meryl Streep plays her role incredibly well. <laughs> I mean, it was she she did an inc- incredible job. Um, you know, Tom Hanks, one of my favorite actors as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I obviously having a background in journalism, mass communications, I just, I, I love the story as well. I, you know, I don't, I don't know how much my wife enjoyed it, but, um, it's a simple story. There's not a lot of action to, you know, should we publish this or should we not publish this? <laughs> right. Which is the whole premises. I actually, it'd be interesting to make a story about not public. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too scary and bad. We're not publishing at the end. <laughs> That would be. Yeah, are you? Have you been a consumer of journalism films all along? Like, are you an All the President's Men person? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Spotlight. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that. That has to be a required uh, viewing for for someone with a, a journalism and mass communication mm-hmm. degree. I feel like it's. You know. Uh, I, I probably like those those kind of films a little bit too yeah. much. But. I like. Well, I like the fact that they also. You give you an opportunity to see, you know, how the sausage gets made, mm-hmm. um, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we were talking about Michael Wolf in an episode not too long ago, sometimes that process is very ugly. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine in the post it was quite a bit more, you know, kind of respectable and people arguing ethics and all that sort of thing. <laughs> right. That's that's basically what it is. That's that, that's the entire thing. You've you've nailed the plot. I have to be careful though because I I have to be very careful about talking about things I haven't seen. Yeah. Because that'll get you in trouble. I I and the only thing that I saw that would be comparable, which isn't comparable at all, is The Shape of Water, which I thought was mm. fantastic. Yeah. But uh if, if it has absolutely nothing to do with journalism ethics. In fact, um, something I'm thinking about is that there's a set of these films that are essentially about either a lack of communication because the central character in the film doesn't speak. And um, there are some other films like Barbarian Sound Studios, which is about post-production and you know making the sound of stabbing bodies and things like that. And then there's a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode called um, Hush, where 
the gentlemen take the voices of everyone away. So most of the episode is actually pantomimed. So I think there's some really interesting stuff. And then my favorite is Pontypool, which is where uh, actually listening to somebody speak is how a disease gets transferred from somebody to somebody Mm -hmm. else, which is kind of awesome. But uh, someday. 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 Someday we'll get to that. Oh, I think you said speak. I think you said sausage. So I'm going to make my transition. Speaking of sausage, have you heard of the latest Facebook story? I have not heard the latest Facebook story. Okay, so um, so Mark Zuckerberg put out a as as every press release is on Facebook a Facebook post, and I want to read a little bit of it um, just for some context. It's it's fairly long. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but. Um, he says, we built Facebook to help people stay connected and bring us close together with the people that matter to us. That's why we've always put friends and family at the core of the experience. Research shows that strengthening our relationships improves our well-being and happiness. But recently, we've got feedback from our community that public content, posts from businesses, brands, and media, is crowding out the personal moments that lead us to connect more with each other. Uh, then I'm going to skip down to where he says, we're making a major change to how we build Facebook. I'm changing the goal I give our product teams from focusing on helping you find relevant content to helping you have more meaningful social interactions. As we roll this out, you'll see less public content like posts from businesses, brands, and media. And the public content you see will be be held to the same standard. It should encourage meaningful interactions between people. So basically, um, the what what Zuckerberg is trying to he's, he's trying to convey that you know it's all about the end user and meaningful relationships and blah blah blah. Um, so I'm 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 boxing out media and pages. Uh, unless you want to be a paid advertiser, then of course, you know, we'll, we'll find space for you. Um, but there's been a lot of talk about how this affects media because, um, for the past few years, media has really been bending to the will of Facebook that, uh, you know, the, what, what, what's been talked about is no one goes to the, the media's websites anymore. They get it, they get it from Facebook. And even when we heard that, so that was something that, uh, Chris Gilliard mentioned in our last podcast that youth consume the majority of their news from Facebook itself. Um, and, and some of the ways in which the media is bent, right. Is they've, they've decided to make short videos and embed those directly in social media platforms. Um, they've started to format their articles in ways that, you know, that, that the, the, the beast likes to be fed the best, um, and now what Facebook is saying is, you know, we, we are changing our algorithm sort of, unless you're going to be paying to have your space on it, we're probably going to start uh, removing a lot of that. And so the only, only news that's going, so in, rather than the, the way that you will see a, say Boston Globe article is not by Boston Globe posting the article, but by a friend of yours posting that article or resharing an article that's from an actual person itself. So when you when when they use the phrase meaningful interactions on Facebook, what comes to mind to you? Like what do you think of as like a meaningful interaction? Well, this is yeah, this is tricky, right? Because yeah. how does the algorithm decide what's meaningful? Is it like the amount of comments something gets, you know, the rantiness that ends up coming out of it? Uh is it is there some kind of a emotional rating that you should be getting for something that's meaningful? I don't know. That's a, yeah, it's, I think it's a very tough thing to try to categorize because, you know, clearly 
you know, uh, there used to be like clicking on like, which seemed like right. a minimal commitment. And now you can click on love. Yeah. So <laughs> is that relatively speaking more meaningful right. or is it still just basically a toss off yeah. click or something like that? Yeah. And I, I'm not exactly sure. Like is, is, was the fake news problem that people were posting articles to pages and then just organically that was getting shared a lot? You know, um, I don't think so. I think advertise the, the advertising platform on Facebook had a lot to do with it. And I don't think that completely removing, um, the fake news creators from this is going to stop, you know, Aunt Sherry from, from still posting articles that, that, that she finds across the web and, mm-hmm. and sharing those as well. So. Yeah. Cause there's always this kind of negotiation between what you want to use it for and what it wants to be sure. used for. You know, very much again, going back to what Chris was saying in that it wants to be used as a, basically a vacuum cleaner on your information stream on what you dump out. And, but it also wants you to, um, you know, the thing that I always found the most fascinating in, in the whole kind of Facebook universe was when uh, people from, sort of one part of the world and people from another part of the world that were both connected to me historically are directly interacting with each other, mm-hmm. which is completely yeah. like an unintentional side effect. Right. There's an argument going on between somebody I taught as a high school student in like 1988 and um, one of my current students and somebody I went yeah. to college with. Yeah. And they're, you know, arguing yeah. about something that's that, that's that's relevant. And this doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, it's actually kind of awesome. That is meaningful, <laughs> right? To you, I, whether it's a good or bad argument. Right, it, yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's it's like having a train wreck in your right. photo album, you know. <laughs> All of a sudden, everybody's on the same page. Actually, I have to tell you a funny thing. We were looking at a photo of my my two daughters, and there are two copies of this photograph in the same room. And in one of them, there's something that looks like a little floating red balloon in the wow. upper right hand corner. And so my wife is pointing at it, and going, "It's it." <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at the other copy of the picture, and it's not there. Oh man, that's awesome. That's so, cool. So our, our photographs are being haunted. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to point to one tweet that I saw from Elizabeth Spears, who's the former editor of The Observer. She says, Facebook favoring posts from friends and family is nice in theory, but if the point is to reduce fake news and filter bubbles, it makes filter bubbles worse. And it can make the fake news problem worse if friends and family are regular consumers of fake news, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So I think that, that gets the, 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 the point really well. Do, do you feel like there was a chunk of your life where the, the filter bubble wasn't something that you were worried about? Like, has it, is it, is it something that becomes a growing concern or has it kind of always been there in a way? It is a growing concern. In fact, I, I, I published a blog post about this. So, um, just yesterday it's sort of, I didn't get into it too much, but, um, you know, just about my media consuming habits and, and who controls those. And I, I was, uh, I wrote that I was joking with a colleague that my, my solution to getting out of the filter bubble is email <laughs> and that I've started signing up for, uh, email subscriptions, you know, to like the New York times daily email or, um, uh, the Columbia journalism review, uh, does a great, uh, 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 it's called media today is this column that they put out every day and they send it in a, uh, in an email format as well. And, um, it's still, it's still, it's still filtered, right? It's filtered through the editorial board of those specific media entities. Um, but I, I trust those more than I trust Facebook algorithms or I trust the people that are sharing them on there. Um, and so I'm not trying to completely remove myself from any of those platforms. I don't really, there's been times where I've thought about 
potentially shutting down my Facebook account and um, whether I need that or not. I'm not really there, but I definitely want to limit the amount of time that I spend on there. And mm-hmm. I, I would really like if I, did, I didn't constantly um, give in to the urge to check one of those. And so what I've, what I've tried to do with myself is say, you know, if I get a daily email, hopefully I read it in the morning. Uh, hopefully it's not something that I'm going to throughout the day as much as, 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 as much as I am, because, um, I, I, I do, I, I do feel like, um, you know, there's, there's a level of negativity that's getting passed through social media that I'm not quite sure is the most healthy thing for me personally right now. So, well, there was a, you know, what you're saying is kind of reminding me of, uh, the Dr. Andrew Wiles, uh, you know, on, on some of his, uh, uh, advice, pieces as sort of self-help pieces that would appear on public television. And I remember he was doing one that was uh, arguing for a news fast. Mm. And what he was basically doing was identifying uh, the consumption of news. And you can think of that as the consumption of Facebook or the consumption of Twitter or the consumption of fake news, however you want to think about it, uh, because of its kind of attractiveness and the bottomless pit that it becomes that, you know, you basically set up a regimen of cutting down and cutting down and cutting down and trying to have it be less of a factor in your life because his, I mean, basically his simple argument was, it's making you unhappy. So mm-hmm. stop, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And you know, I, I, I like that. I think that gaining control over it, um, like what you're suggesting about how do you regulate the time that you spend in different media is really important Yeah, and being conscious of it. And then, you know, I, I uh, um, as a parent, this is kind of a parent thing. And I always try to talk to my students about them as potential parents or, or mentors for younger siblings or whatever, to really, as they're thinking about how their media experience is affected, how are they th- helping to teach other people how to use their media experience? So I was a terrible parent and taught my kids, go on the internet because it's like <laughs> just so cool. And you know, just go and go and go and go and just surf and, and you'll always find, you know, and as a result, I've got kids, I have adult children who are, you know, they spend an awful lot of time, uh, on the internet and I am a total hypocrite and think they shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, we have very young children and that's, that's a constant conversation is to what degree should, our children have touch screens, you know, in front of their faces at all times. And in a lot of ways, I've watched my daughters learn so much um, from their ability to, uh, you know, there's a lot. You know, I feel like the, the the cartoons that I was consuming as a kid weren't nearly as educational driven. And, you know, they, they might have had more. Uh, entertainment value to them than, than the stuff my daughters watch. But, but what I really liked about them is when they were going to get educational, you could feel it coming. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I don't know, kids, maybe, you know, and it would just be so the over music, the top. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Come in and the family hug at the end. And, yeah. Um, but but there is a, there's a lot of, I mean, I feel like the entire Disney Junior and Nick Junior, I mean, it's all educational stuff at this point, almost too much, you know, like there's, there, that you can't get away from it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's something we talk about a lot. And the, the other point I was thinking about was an article that I saw in the New York Times um, that was, you know, thinking about how much has this changed over time, right? And uh, New York Times did an interactive piece, which was really interesting, uh, looking at uh, 50 years later, what would it be like to get push notifications in 1968, right? Which is a really 
if if you talk about the story of 1968, it's very familiar. Uh, Not so familiar in that the Vietnam War is like ramping up, but, um, you know, you saw a lot of um, uh, geopolitics happening. You saw a lot of uh, things happening as far as civil rights. You saw the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy. Um, And uh, Lyndon B. Johnson decided that he wasn't going to run for re-election so there's there's a lot of unrest within America as well, um, and I I imagine I can't imagine, or I, I I would like to ask people what was it like to go through a similar period of just what feels I don't, know, I don't know what the best term for it is social unrest, you know as far as what was happening in the media itself. But I I recommend people reading that piece and just kind of seeing it and seeing all the news stories that are popping up. Um, as 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 you go through the transition from from sixty seven to sixty eight, in the same way we might be transitioning from two thousand seventeen to two thousand eighteen mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, there's certainly a, you know it's worth talking about what induces kind of cultural trauma, and then also um, something that there there there's some study of is how does trauma get passed from one generation to the other. Um, and, uh, you know, what can be done about that? And, and on that note, I wanted to mention that currently this past, um, Monday on, uh, on PBS on independent lens, they ran, um, probably my favorite documentary from last year, which is called, I am not your Negro, mm. which is, um, an ama- and I just wanted to mention it because it's available to stream on PBS right now. So, um, all of, uh, you know, any, anyone who is trying to get some kind of a, an understanding of of what happened uh, in 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 the world of civil rights in the in the media world between say the mid 1950s and then when Baldwin James Baldwin was writing this uh, in uh, 1979 it's a fabulous documentary it's basically yeah. based on 30 pages of something he was writing that was going to try to um, essentially explain where things were in black America by looking at Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X, who were people that he knew, uh, people who had all, you know, were murdered um, and uh, in, in ways that were very traumatic for uh, not just for the African-American community, but for the American community. Um, and uh, and Baldwin is such a brilliant crafter of words um, and you don't even, it, it's, it, I remember when we watched it and we paused about halfway, the first time I saw it, we paused about halfway through and somebody said, gosh, that really doesn't sound like Samuel L. Jackson. And I'm like, that's Samuel L. Jackson. Cause he's, you know, he's just doing his, yeah. he's being just like a regular person, not sort yeah. of his, his persona. Right. Um, but it's a really fabulous documentary. And so I, I cannot too strongly recommend it. It, it. It's just a great way of kind of understanding um, and, and Baldwin, there's this complexity to it because, you know, um, he loves people and yet he is just horrified by them and by what they do because of their, their ability to turn ignorance into innocence. And he's able to turn phrases where you kind of get this really strong grasp on how, you know, pretending that something isn't white supremacy or pretending that something is a level playing field in, introduces this kind of innocence about what's really going on. Mm. Um, so it's it's a it's just an, an amazing journey in that film. So it's I Am Not Your Negro. Uh, and if you just go to the PBS site, um, you can stream it for some period of time. I'd strongly recommend it. I want to ask a question. I think this can transition to some of the things that we were thinking about talking about as well is what do you think the role that media is playing in the potential for 
um, seeing a similar type of civil rights movement take place in today's era in a world where it seems like a new thing, a, a, you know, a new thing to kind of hang your jaw open at is dropped three times a day or every other day, right? Where you're like, I can't believe so-and-so said that or that happened or uh, this, this story is being leaked. And, and I, I, my fear is that what we, what we saw uh, in January with uh, marches um, and uh, protest at airports, um, you know, I, I feel like now it's, it's, and this is, and this is another reason why I feel like I'm pulling back is because I feel like I've, I've, I've became more, uh, gawker like at reading news, right? I'm reading stuff. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit about, um, the gorilla channel, right? It's yeah. just like reading stuff because like you kind of want it to be true and, and you're just, you're intrigued by the fact that this, this is this, is this possible or not? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what's your, what's your thoughts on the role that the media is playing? Is it, is it, is it helping or hurting, um, uh, some of some of these issues you know it, it's funny how how much of what we talk about is actually about uh actually ends up being in some ways about trying to deal with that with the uh, you know the idea we, we actually have these hilarious conversations where we say okay what are we going to talk about this week it's yeah. like there's never not anything there's right just, because things are because of the way that the network brings so much material to your attention to one's attention and the revolutionary changes that are happening in media, and then like what you're saying, the fact that it's this bombardment of things. And of course, what gets obviously, in a way, lost in all that is reflection time. Yeah. Um, um, people have written, very smart people have written about this, losing the time to daydream, to, to sort of... Um, yeah, uh, uh, it's like the slow genius idea, right? The idea that there isn't, there are not eureka moments. Eureka moments are are the result of a long process of trying to think through a solution to a problem over a long period of time that often involves being able to just sit and think about right. it. You know, so sitting and thinking about not just you know, for example, you know, what did Trump say, but then how did what did Trump say play itself out in terms of the people who were at the meeting? Yeah. Uh, how are people reacting to how people are seeing that? What does it mean? One of the big differences to me, for example, is that The Daily Show is now using uh, the the S word, I'll call it, just in case people are <laughs> easily offended. Uh, but they're using it on a really regular basis now. They've changed. Yeah. They have knocked George Carlin down to six words you can't yeah. say on television um, because of the way the news story broke on that. Yeah. So does that mean we've started processing it? There's so much complexity to these things. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just a question of how, how do we do that as a culture? How do we get better at making ourselves think carefully and in a way that, that, uh, is based on some social desires of increasing for me, increasing people's ability to make sense out of their media experiences, to trust other people, to learn how to trust other people more. And, um, you know, and kind of make sure that you're not digging yourself into a very dark little corner, <laughs> Yeah, because it's just so easy to do. Right. I mean, we are in in America in a, an environment where uh, you know that we live in a democracy. Uh, there there are ways in which people can um, you know form opinions based, or they can uh, make actions by their feet, right, by getting to the polls. And I'm I'm, I'm curious about um, how 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 this will or won't affect it. You know, if if the the unrest, whether it's the unrest about um, the White House or Congress or uh, yeah, actors, uh, whatever it is, you know, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I want to make, I want to make sure, uh, 
people are held accountable, you know, and, and I don't know if, if, uh, if media is helping there. Well, do you, do you think that the, the kind of social interactivity is really providing a better opportunity for people to form these groups, take action without necessarily having to go through, you know, a, a more complicated, the more complicated face by face to face version? Uh, I think, I think it is. I also think the opposite in which it's, you know, allowing groups that I don't want to exist to also form, um, and that's one of the complexities when Facebook is talking about, we want to bring together the world. Well, the, you know, the world also has governments that are, incre- you know, that are, that are suppressing their citizens. Uh-huh. Uh, are, are we trying to bring together them as well? Um, and, uh, like, like I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that that's uh, a great goal to have, uh, is, 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 is bringing it together. Um, in this in this unified sense, because I don't I, I don't I don't agree with a lot of the practices of the world, you know. Right. Yeah. So um, and uh, and th- and this is a lot of conversation that you've seen about Twitter. Like, there's a lot of things that Twitter wants to talk about as far as uh, the way that they've they've played a role in political uprising in specific countries, uh, but they don't want to also talk about the fact that uh, they've also played an incredible role in um, you know the way. Uh, um, the way letting women, all those happy, lonely white supremacists. Yeah, find exactly. Each other. Yeah, um, the way that that women are targeted on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that's you know that's that's that that's the complexity that 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 we have to live with by having having the environment that you know may do may do good for us in some ways, but also have the exact opposite effect. Well, yeah, and and part of it is uh, I think a question of of trying to make sure that we have a an environment that is where you have some control over how polluted it's becoming. And of course, part of that way of controlling pollution is to clean it. And see, this, this is like a really ugly transition to my favorite hilarious, <laughs> not, it's actually not funny story of the week, which is um, the, uh, what, what I ended up calling um, the idea that laundry and cleaning products should not look delicious. <laughs> that, um, uh, as, as some of you, as I'm sure just about everybody is aware of by this point, for some reason, people are now eating laundry detergent pods. Like not just, they're not just eating the powder or, you know, shooting the liquid down their throats. They're eating the pods. And, um, I, I think that there's, you know, one of the things that the industry could do really quickly is make those things ugly, make them look totally unappetizing. And that, because there's, unfortunately, there are a lot of cleaning products that just look like delightful flavors of things. And they're not, they're going to kill you as what's happened with this uh, rage that for some reason, the, the, what they're calling the Tide Pod Challenge um, is going. So, yeah. So to set that up, and and I haven't read anything about this, but I've heard about it secondhand. So there are people who are filming themselves trying to see how long they can keep a Tide Pod in their mouth before it dissolves, <laughs> explodes. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't, I haven't watched any of these videos. I'm kind of fearful to do so. Yeah, um, I don't. But it's yeah. absolutely terrifying. Right. It's one of those things where you don't necessarily want to be encouraging people yeah. unintentionally. Right. Um, but again, I mean, to, to, to our, the, you know, the point about the technology that exists that allows you to essentially post any video that you want, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, Tide Pod challenges or, um, you know, suicide notes or uh, live videos during uh, crimes, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot. That, that, I'm, I'm laughing because it's, it's uh, the absurdity. Yeah. Of it. Right. Right. It's not right, funny. Right. But, 
Um, but it's just it's an absurd environment to be in. One of the you know one of the upsides, and I wanted to mention one other uh, little chunk of what's out there in the media sphere that's worth having a look at on a website called The Intercept. Um, and one of the things that they have worked on is um, there were some recent comments that were essentially denigrating. Um, Haiti and El Salvador. We don't need to go into a lot of detail, just kind of reference them a little bit ago. But um, the thing that they bring up in this um, uh, uh, post that they put up on January 17th called White Mirror, which I think is also Mm -hmm. a great title. But part of what they're talking about is understanding that uh, in Haiti and El Salvador and other places where uh, the government's involved, there are historical contexts for this that um, it's very. It's one of those things that, again, I think a lot of the media environment that we're in is not necessarily good at having upfront, but it is good at connecting you to the resources that you can use yeah. to understand these things better. So finding yeah. out about the history of the relationship between Haiti and the U.S. and Europe, and you know, to the extent that you that you can put those pieces together, it's extremely important. So that what's happening in a contemporary place like that, or El Salvador, or or the Central American countries, or even Mexico, for example, which is a very, very complicated place. Um, you know, what are the historical circumstances that help us to understand um, how to think about um, these places in a much more complex way? So, just wanted to mention that. Uh, so, it's on the Intercept, and uh, it's the it's actually their their latest podcast episode. We can do this. Ah. We can talk about other people. So they have Shout a podcast, podcast. Yep, uh, that uh, that talks about the importance of the the historical relationship um, that we have to Haiti and El Salvador specifically. Oh, that's interesting. You're going to talk about a big book that you're reading. Oh yeah, we were going to talk about our books. Yeah. Um, because Christmas is a is a great season for if you have particularly generous, nice people, they buy you those books you would never buy for yourself because they're too big or too expensive. <laughs> well, I did buy this one for myself. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> but um, well, just I, pretend and say you did it with a gift card. You yeah, got yeah, from yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I um, I so I got a book that's uh, I've, I've mentioned in previous podcasts that uh, I'm a fan of the show Mad Men. I'm I'm close to saying it's my favorite show of all time, although I, you know, I'm not, I'm not willing to lock it in quite yet. But uh, a book called Mad Men Carousel, which is uh, the complete critical companion. So it basically is every recap that uh, Matt Zoller Seitz did for um, uh, New York Magazine's Vulture blog, and then and, and he started. I believe he started writing in season four. And then went back and then for this book is done now seasons one through three. Um, but I love it in that the fact it's got an incredible amount of, so I, I've started to do a little bit of a rewatch as much as I can. I was joking with my students yesterday in class because during introductions, you know, I was having them tell me their name and hometown. What was the last show that they binged? Um, and, uh, and they had a bunch of shows I've never heard of. <laughs> uh, I realized that the, that the, uh, the space between me and, and students is, is vast. Was there um, any, was there anything that came up frequently or? Yeah, but I can't remember the name of oh, it, okay. <laughs> but there's definitely something there they're way into. Um, maybe I should, I, sh- I should figure out exactly what that was. Something that the new season is coming up, uh-huh. uh, but I have no idea what that is. Um, but, um, but I was joking that. Binge watching for me is like one episode a night because <laughs> I've got kids and I put them to bed and I'm exhausted and um, you know so if we if if we can watch a season 
in in a week and a half or two weeks like like that's that's what i consider binge watching so i watched about half a season of mad men uh and have been reading the the critical companion but it's got it's got a ton of footnotes and then it's also got in notes which is really nice because the in notes are sort of spoilers but he's done a good job of taking those out of uh, the reviews itself. So if, if you've never watched Mad Men, even, it's a great companion book to have because you can read it without really being spoiled. But if you have watched Mad Men, it'll talk about, um, you know, this This alludes to what ends up happening in season four or, or season seven or whatever it is uh, and really tries to pull it all together. So that's that's really nice. And then, again, it being sort of a, a, a historical piece, a, a his, historical fictional piece it it, it uh, fills a lot of gaps as far as like what's happening uh historically mm-hmm. so it's been well, good well so uh the, the the book that i was going to mention which i i haven't uh i haven't started uh, actually plowing through it yet but i'm looking forward to doing so uh is a book that came out in october called pink floyd all the songs the story behind every track so Man. and and it's a it's a massive book. It's it's the size of an encyclopedia because it is kind of that. And um, what it does is kind of it goes through every song that they've done. And um, so I'm very excited to because that's something that um, I think sort of like with the episodes you can do in pieces. Yeah. Uh, and finding sustained reading time is always a challenge. Yeah. Um, so so being able to do this and actually combine it with listening because I want to use it as a motivation to go listen a little more carefully to things too. So I'm kind of hoping that that's the result of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, I enjoy seeing the, uh, the, the, the social media posts that come out towards the beginning of the year of the stacks of books that people are reading. And yeah. so I, uh, I made a tweet. I've since deleted it because it didn't get favorited enough to, for, you know, to, to to stay long enough. I thought it was funny. The world did not. But basically <laughs> saying that I, you know, I've already ruined my New Year's resolution to take a picture of a stack of books. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's like, can I, I just want to tell one little, little, uh, uh, Mad Men story. Yeah. You probably know, but, uh, when Mad Men went on the air, sometime shortly after it went on the air, some people who were really jazzed about it basically created Twitter accounts that were based on the characters. Mm-hmm. And so they were mm-hmm. the character names yeah. and everything like that. And they were all interacting with each other yeah. as if they were the characters. And a- AMC got so mad. The, <laughs> the relationship with... Mad Men and AMC is really, really interesting. Yeah. And I've heard Matthew Weiner talk about it multiple times. Um, it, it sounds actually like kind of a, an abusive relationship. Uh-huh. He talks about how, you know, season one had pretty average rating, ratings. The debut for season two was pretty good, all things considered, but they were really downplaying it. And, you know, just like Matthew, it's just not what we, you know, we need it to be. And and uh, he wanted it to be a success, but they, they're always trying to play this game of, you know, we need we need more out of it and we need more advertisers. And they're trying to drive a very different part of it. Um, but for, I think, you know, AMC got so much, I think, critical acclaim for having Mad Men and Breaking uh-huh. Bad and what was kind of happening at the time and um, almost probably too much credit. And then obviously what ends up happening is uh, Mad Men ends up going on a year hiatus because Matthew Weiner and AMC cannot uh, seal a deal together. But what ends up happening during that period is they end up releasing... I believe it was seasons one through four at the time on Netflix. Uh, 
and so in this period where a season actually ends up not coming out and there's a two-year gap in between the seasons, a ton of people got into Mad Men by starting to, to binge watch the show on Netflix as well. So the second half had a lot of people come into it. But but yeah, that, that uh, the relationship between AMC and Mad Men is a really... <laughs> Really yeah, interesting. AMC's one. had these. They've had these. Like their their tendency, it seemed like for a while, to just fire any showrunner yeah. anywhere near Walking Dead. Yeah. It's just like, no, he's gone. No, he's gone. Yeah. No, yeah. So, uh, yeah, kind of a kind of an interesting, almost like uh, you know, uh, uh, killing your darlings kind of in a way, yeah. which I thought was really bizarre. Yeah. But that's you know that that, that it's a very it, the industries are very complex and they're looking for very different things did you, did you ever watch any of the series outcast by uh-uh. any chance no um there's an interesting thing because they they you know they ran the first season and um so then there was a second season and i was very excited to see it and then it ran in the uk um like six months ago and it has not aired mm. in the u.s and they finally just last week announced a release date for the second season and it's in july wow <laughs> so it's it's another it's a, it's one of those things where it's like really is this how how you're really gonna want this to roll out because yeah. they're you know so what they're and so what they're going to do is they're going to try to rebuild some momentum for it by making the first season available again for people um on cinemax so they can watch the first season and then the um, the, the, so the second season premiered, uh, in the UK on April 3rd, 2017. And I think the, like I said, the announced release date is I think July or something like that in the U S. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and actually, as we were mentioning before, the idea that, that it's an integrated international environment means that maybe some of the programs in the U.S. have much more popularity in other parts of the world. And so it gets there quicker because they've you know, negotiated yeah. the contracts in that way. So uh, it's always interesting surprises yeah. out there. Well, anything else we need to do? Any any. Any props that we need to give? I, uh, I, uh, just, Cory Booker, does he need Corey, props? Yeah, Cory Booker. I think maybe what we can do is uh, uh, recognize that Cory Booker uh, created a, an incredibly passionate speech um, when he was talking to one of the people who was uh, not admitting to remembering exactly what happened um, when he was speaking to the uh, DHS, one of the one of the representatives of DHS, the uh, secretary of DHS, and it's a really it's it's a beautiful piece of video you can find on the CNN site, and um, um, you can listen to his very passionate discussion about you know people who are saying, well, I didn't notice, I didn't know, I don't know what the words were that were said, and uh, his frustration with that. When ignorance and bigotry is allied with power, it is a dangerous force in our country. Your silence and your amnesia is complicity. When Dick Durbin called me, I had tears of rage when I heard about this experience in that meeting. And for you not to feel that hurt and that pain and to dismiss some of the questions of my colleagues saying I've already answered that line of questions when tens of millions of Americans are hurting right now because of what they're worried about what happened in the White House. That's unacceptable to me. So just something in terms of uh, a person who's got a lot to say and uh, is, is, is very passionate about social justice. Um, I think having a listen to what he had to say is a good idea. Good deal. All right. I think that's it from us this yes. week. Um, this is actually, we actually have done two episodes this week. So if you haven't yet listened to the interview with Chris Gilliard, 
Uh, I highly suggest doing that. That was a real, a real treat for us to get Chris and get him in the studio and, and get a little bit of his time. Um, and, uh, I think it's, it's a particular issue that goes unnoticed a lot. Um, but you know, I think you, I think you're starting to see a lot more of it. Yeah. So. We were, we were lucky enough to see him do a public presentation shortly after that, where he went into more detail about the, uh, uh digital redlining and how that works. And uh, it was really, it, it was to a bunch of faculty and staff here at the University of Oklahoma, and it was really well received yeah. and really well done. So yeah, yeah. I think his, I think his ideas deserve the attention that they're getting. Well, great. All right. That's it from us. Until next week. Thank you. Thank you.